You're listening to Irish Radio Candidate Home and Abroad and the Canadian Association of Irish Studies had their conference in Hamilton this past weekend. And the president of the association is currently Michelle Holgren and Michelle's based out in Calgary. We're going to talk to Michelle about a book that she has published and it is called Canada to Ireland, Poetry, Politics and the Shaping of Canadian Nationalism. And that book was brought, uh, I think, hit the shelves uh, at the end of 2021. So it should be readily available and out there if anybody does want to get their hands on it. So um, I know it, you have a time frame on it. And welcome, uh, Michelle, first of all, thanks a million for coming along. Delighted to meet you and uh, looking forward to learning more. Well, so, thank you. So you, you trace this back into the 1700s where you opened back the Irish Patriots to Canada. Tell me a little bit of the background. First of all, uh, I, I should have, I su- suppose, uh, indicated that uh, you did your MA in Irish writing at Queen's University in Belfast. And uh, so you would have spent some time over in Ireland. So tell me a little bit about your interest in the Irish history and what brought you back and what inspired you here? Oh, okay. And I'll just, um, while we're, we're talking about qualifications, I was president of CASE, and then I was past president, um, and the current president is uh, Willie Jenkins right now. Okay, okay. So. My apologies. I'm I'm reading from your bio in the wrong place. Yes, I, I need, I was just thinking, uh, there's several websites apparently I need need to update. I, I still still run the K's website, and I was thinking, have I put the, the new executive up? So so I'm past past president, but I still um quite involved in K's and the the upcoming coming conference. Um, so okay, but, but Willie is our new boss. But yes, I I did a um a degree at at, at Queen's University um on on what was called Irish writing and and I'd already been interested because I had a high school teacher who thought I should read Ulysses or it was one course I I decided I had to read Ulysses and of the allusions in Ulysses and then when I came back to graduate school I um in at uh, Western University I got very interested in early 19th century Canadian history because I had a, had a wonderful professor named uh, DMR Bentley. And I just noticed how many of the early writers we were doing had Irish roots from Northern Ireland. And they were describing areas that, you know, I, I'd hiked all through or, or, or knew reasonably well as a, a tourist. And, and I pointed this out and, and he said, well, you know, you might, that might be a, a thesis topic. So I've been interested in the Irish in Canada for, for quite a long time. And, um, uh, part of the book, I think, developed out of that thesis and my experience, um, again, of the need to understand Irish history and particularly cultural nationalism. Again, with Ulysses, um, it really helps to know the nationalist movements from the early 1700s. And and the more I read, the more I, I dug, Ireland seemed to be all over the place. Um, so, Michelle, then you start off back, as you say, in that period of time. I know the Irish were connecting to Canada through Newfoundland and the fisheries way back even before that. But you're looking, I suppose, at more the Canadian, in, the Irish influence when it comes to things like uh, politics and the shaping of Canadian nationalism, which would really not have been applicable in the Newfoundland experience. Yeah, not not so much. Um, Newfoundland comes in at, at at some point, and other scholars have have, have looked in that in great detail. Um, I I sort of start around the the Irish Patriot movement, which started evolving in the middle of the 1700s, 
17th or sorry 18th century and people would know people like Jonathan Smith Swift who were advocating for more control of Irish economics and and that was much more of a Protestant movement certainly not a Republican movement but saying that the Irish were a distinct people and had a very long culture and to prove that they built on the the increasing interest in the Irish past as it was recorded in documents um, that were written in Irish. And so there was a lot of cultural collaboration going on between um, Irish Catholic scholars and and Protestant scholars, um, what they would have called philology at the time, the study of literatures and and languages. And um, so that created all these interesting stories that the Irish could use to justify that they were capable of governing themselves and and um, capable of uh, in in the 18th century contributing to the growing British Empire because it was very much a loyal movement and as things didn't change much um, that movement became more radical and there were there were um, sort of divergences so you you had the United Irish. Um, and, or the Society of United Irishmen start evolving out of that movement, and they used literature and music to to argue their cause and take it to a more popular audience. So poetry and and song becomes important. Now, we we know that in the early 1800s there was a mid a serious migration, and it would have been labourers who were coming and building the Lachine and the Rideau Canal. But we're looking at a period prior to that. When you look at that period in time, the population of Canada as it was then uh, would have been in what kind of numbers and what percentages or how much influence were the Irish having in those early days? Okay, um, yeah, the, the, certainly the demographics of the 19th century would be, um, would be that the Irish were a significant, um, uh, minority, maybe even majority of, of English speakers. I, I get a little weak on demographics, uh, to be honest, but, but, um, um, anecdotally when, uh, Lord Edward Fitzgerald, who became the leader of the United Irish, uh, men, uh, came, he said that all he could hear were Irish accents in, in Halifax, where he landed as a British officer in 1788. So they certainly were um, both a visible and an audible presence. And um, again, these would be earlier settlers who had a little bit of money, who were buying farms and making them quite prosperous. So he felt very much that there was a very strong Irish presence from the 18th century. And certainly in the military, there would be, I can't give you exact percentages off the top Mm -hmm. of my head. And I know it was after, after the Napoleonic Wars, there was, um, or was no, 18, after 1812, wasn't there, there was a, a move afoot to stabilize or to protect uh, from a potential another American attack by giving land or encouraging uh, former soldiers to settle in along towards the American border. Um, so I guess that that connection was there going back at that time as well. But you open with Isaac Weld, Weld in 1774. Um, give me the the sense of why that's your starting point. Um, well, again, he's sort of tangentially linked to the United Irish Movement is is when he did um, finally decide to come um, around 1794. Um, 
there'd already been some attempts in Ireland for the French to to create an invasion. So he he could see what was coming, and and he thought, well, gee, um, uh, British North America and, and or America seem to be relatively peaceful places, and there is an Irish presence, and they're all English speaking. Uh, so he decided um, to go and. He decided not to stay there, but he wrote quite a vivid travel account that um, ended up being widely published. And because he described um, uh, Canadian areas, particularly Quebec and some parts of what's now Ontario, um, in such glowing terms, uh, he was often alluded to in later travel uh, travel accounts or um, uh, emigration handbooks. So he sort of created a very early and vivid picture of Canadian life. And he wrote um, in great detail about the French Canadians and, and presented them as very happy rather than revolutionary and created quite a, a positive picture of Canada, significantly under British government. Um, but he also, um, as other scholars have, have, have pointed out, um, would note details. He was a good, he had a good eye for detail and he was a good writer. And he would describe the bird life in a certain way or describe the um, the songs and the mannerisms of the French Canadian voyageurs and other people, including the Irish poet Thomas Moore, would pick up on those details. And when they wrote about Canada, they would include them. So they became um, sort of central, quintessentially Canadian images to an Irish audience and Weld was basically responsible for that because he had this Trevor trove of um, vivid vignettes of Canadian life. And when you mentioned Thomas More, actually, that was the one I was going to come to next was because I would not have associated any connection between Thomas More and Canada. And that is the Thomas More of the Meeting of the Waters. Yeah. And, um, and that's what yeah most people would know him as the Irish poet. Um, in the 19th century, um, some of his poems that he wrote uh, relating to America and Canada were so popular that they were sung all through North America and they were sung all through Ireland. And, of course, one of them was the Canadian Boat Song. It's it's not as popular as The Meeting of the Waters, but I think he's drawing on um, that love of Irish you know, landmarks, um, you know, he, he sings about Avoca and all these other Irish rivers and people start saying, well, gee, the Canadian rivers seem to have their own folklore associated with them as well. So, so he, um, he, he gave Canadians a very early ballad that people could say, well, it's written by somebody from abroad, but he captured the spirit of the place. And that becomes very important to romantic nationalism, the notion that each place has its spirit and, and human beings kind of channel that um, mostly through poetry and music. And I guess one of the surprising things I'm thinking of, and that is that Thomas More would even have been a name that would have been uh, associated or people would have recognized or would have had any involvement on this side of the Atlantic, um, that his music and his poetry would have in some way infiltrated uh, the uh, the area here. Yeah. Well, in his memoirs, he certainly, because he was a very young man when he traveled and he, he had a fairly low-level bureaucratic job when he went to North America, um, but he'd already published some poetry. And when he met people, particularly in Canada, um, they would 
give them stuff for free. He, he sort of, they'd say, oh, you're that Thomas Moore. Um, no charge. You know, it's an honor to fix your watch or, or, or do whatever. So yeah. Um, and then of course, later Canadian nationalists said, well, gee, if Thomas Moore thinks this is a great place that's capable of beautiful poetry, um, you know, we need to get out our pens and start writing as well. Right. Fascinating. Uh, of course, any book or any history of the Irish influence in Canada would be remiss and could not but mention Thomas Darcy McGee. And, uh, you know, again, that whole period was so instrumental in the establishment of the Canada that we know today. Yeah, definitely. And, of course, McGee in one of his poems says, uh, look what Moore did. Um, and now you Canadian nationalists uh, should write poetry as well to to celebrate um, all of your unknown history. And of course, there is that connection with um, these earlier Irish um, intellectual movements that were doing the same thing, saying that um, we don't need to just know British history. We need to know Irish history and we need to know it in a vivid way and a good way of um, getting that history out to people who may not have access to a lot of history books is to set that history down in ballads. So, um, so McGee wrote a lot of what I like to call ripping yarns, um, about, uh, Canadian exploration and, um, Canadian settlement life. Um, he wrote, uh, for the time quite sympathetically about, um, uh, Canadian indigenous life in a sort of a very, with very broad brushstrokes, of course. Um, but his, um, his contribution was to keep up that tradition that was both a United Irish tradition and a Young Ireland movement tradition of setting historical events that defined the essence of a place um, in in ballads that could be easily remembered and uh, set to music. I've heard it said, and I think it bears true, that, you know, the Irish, particularly during the um, time of the penal laws and uh, other periods in time where they didn't have access to education particularly, uh, were able to write history and have that history recalled and remembered by doing it in the form of poetry and song. And that much of the written, what would have been the, the British narrative was put on paper and that the Irish narrative actually survives better and longer because it was put in that, in that medium. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it, it's, um, I think, um, romantic poets and Irish romantic poets that I, I think McGee is, would be drawing on that very old, um, uh, history of, of the, um, the olives or the, the, the bards being able to sort of record everything, um, um, and, and transmit that orally. So they're drawing on, on that thread. And of course, McGee being a historian, um, he also celebrated the 17th century Irish Catholic historians who were writing in both Irish and um, Latin and and recording it as well. So um, so it was making the argument that Ireland had this this incredibly ancient culture and incredibly literate culture that was uh, preserved um, both in the um, the folklore of um, of of the Irish rural people, but also locked away in the libraries, but still accessible to to scholars in in both English and Irish. So so the oral um, and and the literate come together quite well in the type of um, writing that a lot of 19th century Canadian writers were doing, especially the Irish Canadian writers.
And of course, the Irish were well used to having to um, hide the true um, message in uh, flowery descriptive language in such a way that it could be just seen as a love story or something else. But yet it was something that was highly political. Yeah, Moore was very good at doing that. Indeed. Um, so uh, let's talk a little about Nicholas Davin. And if it's the same, that's Nicholas Davin from Limerick. County Limerick. Let me just double check. If um, he is, if, if he's the Nicholas Flood Davin, I think that's buried here at Beach, Beachwood Cemetery. Um, yes. And uh, not one of the more, I suppose, from an Irish perspective, you say, well, as I've said to um, others, you know, the Irish in Canada, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. And it's not all a good news story. And, you know, we have the people who didn't necessarily do a good service to who, what might be the nice side of who we are. And if it's the same Nicholas Flood Davin who wrote the policy for the residential schools, is that who we're um, yes. referring to? Yeah. Yes. And Kilfinan. Yes, you're right. Um, County Limerick. I, was, yeah. I kept thinking Cork because he, he, he briefly studied in university there. Uh, yes, that, that would be that Nicholas Flood Davin who, um, uh, is um, more well known now for for his report on the residential schools, which he he submitted to um, John A. Macdonald, and um, visited industrial schools in the states and said they're well run, um, people are learning useful skills, the children are taken care of, and he also said um, the thing to do is to take the children away from their parents, and the government will become their parent, and we know very well. How, how that turned out, that they, they were abused and starved and neglected. Indeed. Um, so, Michelle, um, something like this, how, how long did, you, from when you started the researching and the amount of time that something like this would take before you kind of sent the last draft off to the publisher, um, a huge amount of time invested in this? Um, I guess 20 years really, um, or more. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, it could, it could, could go back to, um, to, 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 to my time in, in Belfast in some ways, because, um, I learned about these, these literary movements that became political movements, um, uh, in, in so many ways. So I, I got interested in these writers, uh, when I did my thesis, I did, did it on four writers. And then um, they, I, I thought about them more when I, when I, um, when I taught. So a lot of people will sort of work the thesis up into a book. And um, I moved around and worked at different universities for a while and kept teaching and kept thinking about them and, and researching more. So I ended up instead of with four, with 12. So, so 20 years, but, but the book, um, oh, about five or six years right. writing it. So within Canada, when you go from coast to coast, uh, and you taught the title of the book is in, uh, and the shaping of Canadian nationalism, Canadian the perception of the Canadian psyche or the the what can, Canada is is perceived, I would have to think, very differently on the west of the Rockies than the east of the Rockies, and then you come into the prairies into Ontario and over into Quebec and down the Maritimes. So there is not what, nor is there in any political um, jurisdiction, a what you could say is one thing. 
So with all the variations that you have across Canada, can you see that there is and that this influence has, is reflected in the different political philosophies, movements of nationalism across the country? Ooh, okay. Um, well, I guess one of the things that struck me about the, the the political outlooks and the philosophical outlooks of the Irish in Canada, when you look at 12 different people from uh, somebody like, like Davin um, to somebody like Adam Kidd, who was much more sympathetic and, and much more ready to advocate for, say, in, Indigenous um cultural sovereignty and rights um, is that you have um, not one monolithic Irish nationalist view is you, you had had people who were um, who, who, who argued that Canada should be loyal to Britain. You argued that people's Canada should be a Republic. You had some who like McGee or Davin uh, went through a whole bunch of different opinions before they settled on, on sort of the type of constitutional monarchy uh, that they were willing to support. So I guess you could say the same things about Canadians today is, is we, um, that, that nationalism often says, well, there's some central, essential myths, but there's, you know, regional differences and they're all colored on people's past experiences. Um, I would argue that the West's um, politics were shaped profoundly by what was going on in Ireland in the 1870s and 1880s with the land wars, for instance. Um, I'm, I'm not sh- quite sure how, being in Alberta and following politics very avidly, how exactly I, um, that translates into the type of politics that we have now. Um, I suppose, again, you could, you could argue that um, places like Alberta are much more interested in, in American political models in some ways, uh, where other places are much more, you know, um, uh, interested in the type of, you know, Burkean constitutional, um, uh, a model that, um, that McGee appreciated. Um, and out, out in Vancouver, you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, people with a, uh, celebrating a very diverse, um, uh, community of, of, of immigrants, which is what Irish Canadian, um, nationalists celebrated as well as, so, um, yeah, I'm, I always feel a little out of my depth with current politics, but <laughs> I, you know, but often you can see, um, when we're working through things and running around and waving our arms at each other, um, you can see that there were quite a lot of political controversies, um, uh, that, that were being brought over by these diverse communities of Irish people and we're all trying to figure out how to articulate, um, articulate that. I would also think that the perception, uh, aside from McGee, who would have been seen very much on the national side, but the, the perception is that the shaping of Canada was predominantly from what would have been the loyalist unionist side of Ireland uh, rather than the nationalist side. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, I think McGee's argument, because as I said, he, you know, he pretty much rang all the changes politically. He started out as a Republican. He started out as, uh, anti-clerical and became very ultramontane and things like that is, um, I, I, I think, um, he, he articulated that, um, you could, 
celebrate Irish nationalism and having sort of a constitutional monarchy allowed you to um, to have all of the, the the things that were important to your cultural identity um, in Canada. So so he, I think that's and and he argued that maybe um, people on you know who were Northerners and Unionists um, felt very strongly about their own views. Like a lot of his writing is about the north of Ireland and about that kind of reconciliation. So um, so there. I, I think um, I think he felt there was room to be Irish Catholic and nationalist, and um, I think he would also argue that you wouldn't get that in the states, um, which was Republican. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, no, me, but, yeah, yeah, it's more. I, I guess I'm, what I'm saying in a way is that the perception being that mm-hmm. you know when you look at Canada and, and um, Upper and Lower Canada, particularly, that it was such a strong influence, I guess, from what would have been the Northern Unionist Protestant side, mm-hmm. uh, as distinct from that the South of Ireland, particularly the, South, the immigrants from the South of Ireland, would have been the poor workers, farmers, mm-hmm. not necessarily the influencers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so in a way, um, seeing what you've done and some of the the, the connection of highlighting the nationalist perspective is not something that I suppose is that uh, it, it hasn't been covered that well other than through McGee. Yeah. Well, Standish O'Grady is an interesting example because he's from the South. He's a Protestant. He seems to know a little bit of um, the Irish language. Um, and he's, he's from Cork and, and, um, Quite, uh, he, he even though he he seems to be a loyalist. When you start digging, he's um, he's much more sympathetic to the culture of the the Irish peasants. And James McCarroll's another person like that who apparently was in, possibly in the in an Orange Lodge as a young man, and um, again from the south um, as a Protestant, and ended up um, supporting the Fenians. So uh, when you look at individual biographies. Um, yeah, you see a much more complex picture than, um, you know, than just a sort of a, a, a broad brush with, mm-hmm. with paint. So. Um, so we'll switch gears briefly. And uh, Canadian Association of Irish Studies, a wonderful organization that you guys get together annually. You've had to probably suspend your in-face for or in-person for two years. So mm-hmm. you're uh, back together in Hamilton. Um it must be exciting to be looking forward to reconnecting again with the people that you uh, haven't seen as such for so long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just um, meeting people in person and, um, uh, and you know, it's, it's often like a who's who of Irish studies, like people like, like David Wilson, and Gavin Foster and Willie, Willie Jenkins and Jane McGaughy, all these people who published extensively um, and, and made us understand the Irish in Canada in, in very complex and, and um, deep ways will be there. It's also fun. There's usually music um, and poetry and 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 literature and art celebrated as well. Uh, have a lot of graduate students, a lot of up and coming scholars who have a venue to present their work as well. And I guess that's also when you say up and coming scholars, the uh, amount of interest uh, hasn't waned. If anything, probably has increased over the last uh, 25, 30 years because of the number of faculties across the country between Quebec, Montreal, Ottawa, 
St. Michael's, isn't it? And uh, uh, you guys out there. Uh, there's a, lot, a huge academic interest in Irish studies in Canada. Yeah, yeah, from pretty much from coast to coast, you know, from Memorial and, and yeah. uh, some down in UBC and, um, you know, a fair bit in, in Alberta as well. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Michelle, it has been a real pleasure chatting with you. The book, again, is Canada to Ireland, Poetry, Politics and the Shaping of Canadian Nationalism. Where would I, should we direct somebody if they're interested? Uh, probably to the Millgill Queen's University um, Press website is is the best way to order it, I know. And uh, thanks a million for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure chatting. Thank you, Austin.